We are concluding our summer series on the topic of reconciliation this morning. Again, as a reminder, as I've done frequently throughout these messages, reconciliation is quite simply the restoration of right relationships. And its aim, from a biblical perspective, is not merely peaceful coexistence that's sustained by lack of interaction, but rather the reestablishment of loving union across lines of human difference. A loving union and communion that is the restoration of diversity and unity, creating harmony that we see at the beginning in God's creation that is meant now to be on display to the entire world through the church, through the people of God, who live together under the shadow of the cross, the cross which abolishes and removes hostility and creates the conditions for genuine peace and love and relationships. At least that's the goal, that's the vision, that's what we long to be, and the reason we've spent some time on this and we will continue to think about it together as a community in the years ahead is because we long to grow, to be a part of this work that, God, that is at the heart of God's gospel, that in Jesus as Lord, God is working to reconcile all things, to sum up, to unite all things in his Son, in Christ. And that brings about an imperative upon our lives as his people who live in response to this great gospel, that we too are called to participate in this union of all things, this reconciliation. So that's our hope. We want to continue to press into that, and I'm sure it applies to us all in similar and very different ways. Now, embodying this hope together as a body isn't easy. It's quite difficult. And for any of us who have been at pressing into this work of reconciliation for any period of time in our lives, we know how easy it is to get discouraged by these difficulties and these challenges. We, we know as well that these difficulties and challenges aren't unique to us. They're not unique to the 21st century. They're not unique to the American church. But these are difficulties that have been encountered from the very beginning in the history of the church. A quick survey of the New Testament reveals that so much of what was written was written to address divisions and difficulties and discord in the life of the local community. There are two women called out in Philippians 4, verse 2, that are urged by Paul to agree. They go down in the canon because they were in disagreement, and Paul urges them to agree in the Lord. It was micro, and it was macro, and it was everywhere. And so Paul is constantly, in his own canon, his own letters, he's writing uh, toward these problems. And we're going to look today at the way in which he handles this with the church in Rome, but not exhaustively. I, I want to be summary today as much as possible and really drive out of one verse. So if you have your Bible, open up to Romans 15. The church in, the church in Rome, like, again, many of the churches, the earliest churches, was struggling to be reconciled. They were struggling to be unified. They were struggling to embody the beautiful vision of God's work of reconciliation across cultural lines of difference that manifest themselves in what to eat, what not to eat, and what days were, like, were special and what days weren't. Paul deals with this in Romans 14. And he's writing the entire letter of Romans and expounding the depth and the wonder and the beauty of the gospel in Romans in order to bring about the result of reconciliation in this one church in God's new world. And so... In, this, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 15, Paul upholds 
to the church in Rome, Jesus. Jesus as an example of love. A love that does not, he says, seek to please oneself, but rather seeks to please one's neighbor for his or her good. A love that embraces the other and makes room for the other. And he urges the church in verse 7 to be like Jesus, to do for one another what God has done for them. Welcome one another, he says, as Christ has welcomed you, verse 7, to the glory of God. It's the call to reconciliation. It's the call to embrace the other across lines of difference. It's the call to unity and to being one. And then he reiterates that the work of Jesus the Messiah, as he begins to quote from these Old Testament passages in verses 9 through 12, was to bring together both Jew and Gentile, this great divide. We looked at this a number of weeks ago. But Paul picks up these Old Testament quotes that draw us forward and point us toward this hope that one day the Gentiles would be included in the people of God, the Jews, and that together they would glorify God and rejoice in hope. And then he gives his closing words his benediction. Actually, he gave a benediction in verse 5 as well. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That benediction is so much about the practical outworking of this vision of God in the gospel of reconciliation. But he gives another benediction in verse 13. And these are his closing words in his argument to a church struggling with reconciliation. And so I want to take them up as our closing words in this series to this church on reconciliation because they're appropriate and fitting. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. See a few things from this. First, the nature of this hope and where it comes from. At the beginning of this verse, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. The three things that he mentions in this benediction are joy, peace, and hope. And I want to ask you, honestly, where do you derive your sense of joy from? Where do you derive your sense of peace from? And where do you derive your hope from? It's so easy to look for joy in good circumstances, in things going well, in the world being rightly ordered, at least for my life, in such a way that I'm thankful for all that's going right. It's easy for us to root our peace in our own experience of, again, things being rightly ordered in our lives, things aligning with our desires and our hopes and our dreams. It's easy to take a sense of hope in the world and in our lives when we look out on our future and see good prospects the potential for a promotion, for a relationship that we've been longing for, for a vacation that we need. And so we begin to root this longing for hope in these things. But where does Paul say they're rooted? In believing. 
in faith, in trust. Trust of the God who has spoken. If we're going to make progress along the path in the ministry of reconciliation as a church family, and I pray that we do, then this first reality of this benediction, which is that the reality of God and of the God who speaks and the God who acts and the God who moves and the God who recreates and the God who forgives, the God who shows mercy, the God who has compassion, the God who loves, that this will be where we root our sense of joy and peace and hope. Paul has expounded the work of this God throughout this book to the church in Rome with that purpose in mind that they would come together, that they would reunite and be reconciled across their Jew and Gentile lines, their cultural divides. Paul expounds this gospel to them. This gospel that he says is of God's faithfulness throughout the entire book. And he says, look, though you were running away from God, though you were enemies to him, God ran after you. God didn't spare even his own son for you, but laid him down that he would give you life and won us back to himself, and now as his people, empowered by the Spirit, nothing, this is the height of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Famineness, nakedness, danger, sword, tribulations, hardships, even death itself. He says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So he says you're more than conquerors in all things, in all circumstances, because you're united with Jesus through this wonderful gospel. And you're on the winning side. You're on God's side. And God is carrying this world to this great and wonderful vision that is the defining feature of Christian hope, which is the vision that one day people from every nation and tribe and language would gather together around the throne of the Lamb who was slain and shout out, salvation belongs to our God. That's what we're looking forward to. And it's the reality of God in the gospel that is at the heart of the Christian sense of joy and peace and of hope. Which is why Paul says, may God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, in believing the word. Not the, one, not the things that you can see, not the circumstances that never measure up. Believe me, there is all kinds of reasons not to be joyful. And there are all kinds of reasons not to have peace. And they're real, and we're called to lament them and be sad about them and to mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. So don't mishear me and say, that's not a part of the human life of responsive faith. There are all kinds of reasons, if we look around us, to be so discouraged and beaten down. And we feel this deep in our bones day after day. But Paul's final benediction over this church that he longs to be unified is I want your joy and your peace and your hope to be rooted in the word of God that has spoken a word of truth and power and change over you and over your world. A word that guarantees a future that you long for deep in your bones and that anytime you see an anticipation of it, a representation of it, a story about it, you resonate with joy. I was listening to a radio, uh, a podcast earlier this week, This American Life, and they told the story of this, you know, this cop and, who was crooked, changing, 
and finding reconciliation with one of the guys that he got booked into prison for three years, a white cop and a black man who he had mistreated, being reconciled. And granted, the story was more complex, but that little bit of the story was picked up by all the major newswires and spoken about on CNN and NBC and everywhere, because when we see a story about some kind of thing that glimpses the future for which our world, to which our world is headed, we rejoice, we resonate, we applaud, we want to keep telling that story. So I want to begin, and so where is your joy this morning? Where is your sense of peace this morning? In what are you placing your hope this morning? It is so human to root those things in the circumstances around us, which makes them so unstable, so erratic. And what Paul is praying here and blessing this church with at the end is he's praying that the God of hope Fill them with joy and peace by faith in believing, in rooting their lives in this one true word of the gospel. Now, a couple of effects from this kind of rootedness in hope. The first is that there is a... There's a kind of liberation that the life of faith brings in the midst of the present-day realities that are difficult and hard. A glimpse into this, the day before he was assassinated, in what he didn't know would be his final speech, Martin Luther King Jr. addressed a rally in Memphis on April 3rd, 1968, and it's a well-known speech. He reflects toward the end of the speech which apparently he had a cold and hadn't planned. He was just speaking extemporaneously. But he reflects at the end of his speech on a stabbing that occurred in 1958 in Harlem, a deranged black woman who stabbed King in the chest. And the fact that the doctor said after that if, his, if he had merely sneezed on his way to the hospital with the blade in his chest, that it would have struck his artery and he would have died. And so he reflects rhetorically, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here for this. I wouldn't have been here for this. And he walks through many of the gains of the freedom-fighting movement in the early and mid-1960s. As he nears the end of the speech, he addresses his transition from Atlanta that day to Memphis and says, they were telling me, now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now, he said. Remember those words. I left Atlanta this morning, I got to Memphis, and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out or would, what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now. Do you hear, do you hear the sense of relativization? Don't worry, I'll balance this in just a moment with the other dimension. But it really doesn't matter with me now. What do you mean it doesn't matter with you now? You've given your life to this cause. You've been fighting hard for this cause. You've risked your life. In the, what, do you, what do you mean? And then he continues, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. 
like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so, he says, these are his final words, I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Why? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. We get so discouraged in the work of reconciliation. It is hard work. It is laborious work. It takes energy and effort and prophetic vision and discomfort and slowing down and confronting our own sins and being honest about past wounds and all of those things and uncomfortable situations. And it's just so easy to get discouraged. And if we know how it is easy it is to get discouraged, surely this man who had given his life in the middle of a tumultuous time in our nation's history for the work of God's vision of reconciliation could get discouraged. And yet what he says is that my hope is so profoundly and deeply rooted in the vision of God and his promised land and his glory. And mind you, for Martin Luther King Jr., that wasn't just a vision of the liberation of a people, though of course that was a huge part of it. But in his I Have a Dream speech, he cast this vision of one day little white girls and white boys and, and black girls and black boys in Alabama, a place of great racial injustice, playing together because he recognizes that God's ultimate vision, the ultimate hope, is a vision for the union of all peoples dignified, equal, and made in the image of God, to be enjoying the fruit of God's redemption and salvation together. That's the vision. That's the promised land. And he's seen that vision. And because he's seen that vision, he can say in the midst of turmoil in the moment, it doesn't matter to me now. I'm not worried. All I want to make in terms of the connection to us is, look, I don't know where you are this morning in thinking about this work of reconciliation that we want to continue, by God's grace, Lord have mercy, to grow in as a body. But if you're here this morning and you're deeply discouraged, I want you to know that Paul's closing words to the church in Rome so deeply connect to us. Because we cannot move forward in the work of reconciliation and all that it entails outside of a vision of the promised land, outside of the deep certainty of hope that comes through faith as the people of God, hope in God's word declaring this future to be a reality. And King understood this. Did you catch the end of, of his remarks? And so I'm happy tonight. Now, we wouldn't equate happiness with joy, but he was speaking extemporaneously at the long of a long speech, and I would submit to you, that's joy. And then he says, I'm not worried about anything. And I would submit to you that that's peace. Joy and peace in believing. This relativizes our efforts in a way that liberates us to rejoice in the work of God. Now, my son's sitting here, so I have to be careful, because he's not usually sitting here when I use him as an example. But lately, in our home, we have been uh, splitting up some chores. And so one of the chores that Jameson gets is mowing the yard. And, uh, and so just a kind of illustration of this, you know, Jameson is learning how to mow the yard in a way that really works. Um, and yesterday, he mowed the yard. I actually haven't gone out, Jameson, to check and see how, how this works. But there's some freedom when you are a boy in a household 
and you're not the buck stops here person, that you can go out and mow the yard and know that even if your efforts may fall a little bit short of what really is meant to happen, that you have a dad who's going to come in and finish the job well and then teach you how to do it better next time. And so we're, nav- aren't we? we're navigating that process together uh, as father and son. In the same way, we're working at reconciliation in the midst of a world but we know that we will do it imperfectly, that we will leave a lot of things undone, that we'll continue to make messes along the way. There's a joy, there's a liberation, there's a freedom in knowing that there is a God who assures us that one day it will be done perfectly. Now, the second side of this is to balance the first, which is that hope, this kind of deep hope, Paul longs for it for the people in Rome in the church in Rome, and longs for it for us because he knows that hope drives this kind of action. It drives our engagement. It doesn't drive it in such a way that everything depends on us, which leads us to despair and discouragement. That was point one. But it drives us to action in such a way that because we know that God is bringing things to that full and final climax, we will work tirelessly in the moment in the day, because our hope is in a God who will change the broken world in which we live. In a sermon that he gave a couple of years ago on race and hope that floated around our group, Be the, our Be the Bridge group at Church of the Cross, Tim Keller references David Chappell's 2005 book called A Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow. And as Keller relates, one of Chappell's main points in the book is that white liberals did not do much about segregation in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in our nation. They didn't believe that you should demonstrate or coerce. These white liberals, according to Chapel, were largely secular, and their hope was in human science and human nature, and they just believed that things would improve and get better. And so their version of hope in humanity was a disincentive to confrontation and action. Chapel then contrasts this with the black activists of those same decades whose narrative was shaped so deeply by the narrative of biblical justice and reconciliation. And King is a great example of that in the later decades. Who, because of their hope in the coming kingdom of God, had a more optimistic view of what was possible than the white liberal counterparts did. They believed that God would one day make all things new and change everything. And they also had, at the same time, a more realistic view that human sin and the structures in which, they, in which sin gets embedded would only be changed through divine intervention. But it was not a divine intervention that didn't have human flesh and bone and voice giving itself to that intervention. And so, armed with this more optimistic hope and more realistic hope, they protested, they coerced, they spoke, they gave prophetic vision to a different future. And they were the reason, the ones with the deep biblical hope, that the era of Jim Crow was abolished. Hope is a deep motivator for action in our world. And Paul doesn't want to encourage a kind of passivity. And certainly I don't want to encourage a kind of passivity in terms of the relativization of human effort in light of God's great vision. That, though, is a source of tremendous joy and peace to all of us as we wrestle with the other side of this, that hope moves us to action. It moves us to engage. It moves us to embrace. It moves us to lament, to confess, to forgive, to repent. All of these things are rooted in our hope of a better day that God is bringing about. 
So this is all why Paul ends with hope. Now may the God of peace, God of hope, I should say, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that through the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. As we continue our march as a community in response to the grace and love of God to embody for the world the unity and diversity that creates harmony to God's glory. I long for us to be a people who are filled with joy and peace and hope. And as you think about being part of this journey with us, where is your joy? Where is your peace? Where is your hope? If you're over-fatigued, God will do it. If you're under-concerned, may God wake you. And together, may we walk forward, step by step, increment by increment along this path that God is blazing before us by his spirit and his grace. Amen.